right, Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. So for the last few weeks, we've been focused on the book of Nehemiah. We know that God has called Nehemiah to lead the nation in rebuilding the wall and revamping the city. We've seen the nation face success, and we've also seen them face challenges. And so this morning, we're going to focus again on Nehemiah 5, because in Nehemiah 5, the nation faces a famine, which leads to further chaos. And before we dive into the scripture, I actually want to make my first point for this morning is that this world is chaotic. I want us to recognize what's going on uh, today. This world is chaotic. When we read these few verses that we're going to read in a few moments, I'm reminded of how broken this world is. And by the time we reach this chapter of Nehemiah, the nation is facing a famine in the land. And we know that when there's a famine, there's a lack of jobs. And when there's a lack of jobs, there's lack of money. And when there's lack of money, the bills can't be paid. And this is what the nation is facing while trying to build the wall. And so I want us to hear how bad this famine got, but I also want us to hear how the nation handled this season of hardship. And so we're going to go to Nehemiah 5, and we're going to read the first few verses. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are facing our sons or forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for our other men have our fields and our vineyards. So I've just read the first few verses that reveal the chaos that's going on. There is disunity within the nation. This famine has gotten so bad that the people are scraping for food to save money and stay alive. They're mortgaging their own land to get food. That word mortgage is powerful because it's broken in two different words. That word mort points to mortality. It's a word of death. But then gage, G-A-G-E, is a pledge. It's a pledge. That's why when a man proposes to a woman, he is declaring a pledge to her in marriage, and he's asking her to do the same. And so a mortgage is a pledge until death. And these people are put in the place where they have to make payments to, on their land unto death just to get food. They've reached the point where they're selling and they're sending their own children to work as slaves to make up for the debt that they owe. This serious hardship that they're facing. But I want you to notice two things about this. Notice that these, these verses only focus on the nation building the wall. There's no other outside nations when it comes to this. They're, 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 they may be mentioned later on, but during this passage, they're only focused on the nation building the wall. 
And I want you to notice how the disunity is happening amongst the nation because of the world's chaos, outside chaos. When we read these few verses, we're seeing how chaos of this world can tear apart relationships, even in the family. The chaos of this world that can cause family members to turn against each other and will make friends turn into enemies. Relationships among the members of this nation were ripped apart because of the world's chaos. The world is chaotic because of sin. So through man's rebellion, sin entered the world and it corrupted man's mind and it affected the earth itself. It affected the weather and how things grow. It affects the sea and its inhabitants. Sin has caused natural disasters and it takes lives and it destroys communities. It has caused Wars, as we can see over in Israel, when nations are rising against nation, it has caused recessions. It has caused inflation where people struggle financially, wondering how they'll make ends meet. The chaos that we face is due to the sinfulness of mankind. But those who surrender to Jesus as Lord, are saved from the penalty of sin and are brought into the family of God along with thousands of other Christians all over the world who have surrendered to Jesus. And so just as the nation who built the wall were being a big family of God, those who are in Christ are a big family. And so as a family, we will face challenges. We will face the challenges that come with living in a sinful world. And just as the nation has faced this famine, we're facing inflation. Some of us have been trying to figure out how to pay bills. Some of us have been, may have been trying to figure out how we'll put food on the table or make ends meet. Some of us are struggling. Living in this chaotic world, it comes with challenges, even for those who believe in Jesus. But as children of God, as a Christian household, we cannot allow relationships to be severed and torn apart because of the outside chaos. We can't allow members of a household to turn against each other because of the mess on the outside. As a big family in Christ, we are a family in Christ. And so as a big family in Christ, we cannot allow disunity to come into the church because of this sinful world. We are Christians. We are Christians. We are Christians. And being a Christian, it may not change your financial state, but it should change how you see your financial state. It may not change the chaos of this world, but it should change how you view the chaos of this world. It may not change the war, but it should change how you see the wars. When we have done all we can, even when we're facing challenges, and it's out of our control, we have to remember that nothing is out of God's control. This is an opportunity when we're facing challenges. This is an opportunity for our entire family to see the hand of God at work. I'm reminded of the Israelites in Exodus, how the Israelites were in slavery for over four centuries. But God sends and he uses Moses to deliver them out of slavery and they head to the promised land that God promised their forefathers. And so as they're headed to Egypt, we're headed out of Egypt. They're a free nation. They're they're, they're on their way to the promised land. They're singing, they're dancing. 
And then they reached the Red Sea. You guys remember that story? They reached the Red Sea. Not only did they reach the Red Sea, but now Pharaoh, the guy who let them go, has changed his mind. And now he's chasing them down, ready to kill every single last one of them. They have nowhere to run. They have nowhere to hide. What they have faced is a dead end, and their past is trying to catch up with them. That's another sermon for another day. But the crazy thing about the Exodus is that they literally followed God to the Red Sea. They literally obeyed God to the T. They literally followed him. As they were leaving Egypt, God appeared to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they literally followed God, and it seemed as if following God led them to a dead end. And so now we, we hear this red story, this red sea story. We love this story because we know what's about to happen next. This causes us to sit at the edge of our seats, but that's not how they saw it. They were angry. They were angry because God made a promise that they would go to the promised land, and now here they are at the Red Sea. They begin to panic. They begin to question Moses' leadership. There's so much yelling and there's screaming and there's confusion going on from this big family of Israelites because of the chaos on the outside. But God tells Moses, lift up your hand, lift up your rod, and the sea will part. So he does that. The sea parts. The dead end parts. The problem parts. And they walk through on dry land. And I encourage you to read Exodus chapter 14 when you get a chance because I want you to notice something about this passage God never removed the Red Sea. The Red Sea was never evaporated, was never dissolved. Their problem was never removed. God just gave them the strength to go through it. God never removed the issue. He just gave them what they need to go through. Why am I bringing up the Exodus and we're in Nehemiah? Why, why am I bringing this up? Because by the time we get to Nehemiah, the Exodus story was written in the scriptures. By the time we get to the story of Nehemiah, this story of the Exodus has been passed down from generation to generation. So by the time we get to Nehemiah, the nation had heard about how God can do the impossible. The nation has heard about how Israel has faced challenges before, but that was an opportunity to see God hand at work. But when they reached this famine, they don't go to the scriptures. When they reached this famine... They don't seek God in prayer. When they reach this famine, they don't look back over their lives and say, if God could do it before, he could do it again. The first thing they do is they lean on their own wisdom. They lean on their own strength. They lean on their own understanding. No one turned to the scriptures. No one looked back over their life to, to reflect over the goodness of God. I want to look at what's going on now. There's wars going on. Prices have skyrocketed. But instead of leaning on our own wisdom, we need to lean on God's word. Instead of using this as a time to panic and a time to point fingers at one another and a time to argue, this is an opportunity to look at God's word because God's word says that the earth is his and the fullness thereof. That's Psalm 24. The world and they that dwell therein. God's word, it reminds believers that he can do the impossible. He may not remove the issue, but he can do the impossible by giving us the peace to go through in the midst of it. Our hardship, our lack, 
It gives us an opportunity to see God's hand at work. And so the nation, they're building this wall, but they face hardship. And instead of looking back, they turn against one another. When the chaos on the outside takes place, they don't reflect. They begin to argue. They begin to bicker for one another. We as a family in Christ, we can't allow the chaos of this world to divide us. Which brings me to the next point. We are to live as a family. We are to live as a family. Now, now it sounds like I already said this. sounds like I already covered this, that we're a family in Christ. But these next few verses reveal how we treat each other as a family. And so I want to read Nehemiah 6, next few verses, Nehemiah 5, 6. It says, I was very angry. When I heard their outcry and these words, so he's angry about all the things taking place. He said, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest from each from his brothers, each from his brothers. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers... And my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their field, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentages of money, the grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And so again, we see the disunity of the nation because of the mess on the outside. Because of many, the Israelites paid more attention to the chaos rather than God's word. The mindset of this world leaked into the mindset of the nation. And so when this famine came, people struggled. People were trying to figure out how to make ends meet. They were doing what they had to do. But then there were a group of people that used this famine as an opportunity to make more money. They saw it as an opportunity to take advantage of those that were less fortunate. They began making the poor poor to make themselves richer. They increased the debt, the interest. They took people's children and made them slaves. And verse 6 says, Nehemiah heard this and was angry. He was furious because of all of these horrible things taking place in one big family. This is how... We expect other nations to treat Israel. We expect this from other nations. But this is not how Israel should treat herself. This is what we expect from larger kingdoms, but not the family. Shouldn't be treating each other like this. So how, how should we treat each other as one family in Christ? How do we live as a family in Christ? The next point is that we must love in the fear of God. So how do we 
live as a family in Christ, we must love in the fear of God. Verse 9, he says, so I said the thing that you were doing is not right. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? So the nation, again, they face hardship. It caused division among them. Nehemiah sees it. He gets angry. But, and then, he, then we read verse 9. Nehemiah's anger, can tell, we can tell that it goes deeper than the average human mindset. It's just, this goes beyond just treat people the way you want to be treated. Because even the world says that, and they say it out of context. Nehemiah gets angry because he sees that the division of the nation reveals their lack of reverence to God. The fear of God is reverence. It's honor. It's a deep concern and a deep regard for displeasing him. The fear of God is also it's a reminder of his loving, his loving kindness. He is a loving God who will display his love by his justice. He is a just God who will punish those who sin against him. And so Nehemiah, knowing this, he gets angry with the nation because they are not living in the fear of God. God is a love of God. He's a, he is a God of love. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of fellowship. He is a God of fellowship. He is a God of unity. He is one God eternally existent in three distinct equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in the Godhead, there is fellowship. The Trinity, they serve one another. They glorify one another. They adore one another. They admire one another. There's no one greater in the Trinity. There's no one less than in the Trinity. God is a God of fellowship and love and unity. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it tells us that we are made in the image of God. So we are made to resemble him. We may not resemble him physically, but there are some things about God that God has instilled in us naturally. And that's fellowship. We resemble God in other ways, and that's fellowship with one another. It's having morals. So when we take advantage of one another, when we don't love one another, we are not displaying the image of God in us. We're not displaying the character of God. And so when we're walking in the fear of God, we're striving to reveal the character of God in us to someone else. So this is the opposite lifestyle that the Israelites were living in this passage. Because like the nation was building the wall, we face hardship because of the world's chaos. However, we can't allow what's going on in this broken world to cause us to disregard God's character. Another reason why Nehemiah was angry was because of the reputation of the nation that they were setting for themselves. How are other nations supposed to respect us? This is what Nehemiah is saying. How are other nations supposed to respect us if we can't respect ourselves? If I walk around punching myself in the face and I have a big sign that says, punch me in the face... Does it make sense for me to get upset when someone walks up to me and lets me have it? It doesn't make sense for me to get upset about that. That's what Nehemiah is saying in a nutshell. If you want other nations to respect you as a nation, you have to respect yourselves. Other nations 
can't respect you. But then Nehemiah is also asking, how can other nations see the character of God in us when we're openly fighting, when we're openly bickering, when we're openly taking advantage of one another? How are others supposed to see the image of God in us? How are they supposed to see the character of God when we're fighting one another? That's the question that I have for us today. When we're using social media platforms to expose one another's flaws, how are other people, other religions supposed to see the character of Christ in us? When we're making podcasts to gossip on one another, when we're using God's resources that we're, that we're made to preach the gospel as a way to hurt one another. I would hate for us to keep doing that. And a Muslim father says, come here, son, this is why we're not Christian. Because they can't even get along with each other. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. He is talking to a group of his followers, but he says all people will know that you are my disciples. This points right back to Nehemiah. If we can't show the love of God to one another, how are others supposed to see it? That word love, it's unconditional love. It's loving beyond our faults. It's loving beyond our failures. This is the love that Jesus wants us to have toward one another so that all men will see the character of God, the character of Christ in us. And so just as the nations were watching them, the world is watching the body of Christ. The world is watching how we love one another even in times of hardship. Not just when times are good. That should be our main priority. The character of God. Even in hardship, our main priority should be displaying the character of Christ. Not the money. How can I live like Jesus even in this? And so in verse 10 through 13, Nehemiah sets the example of generosity by meeting with the nobles and making them give back everything that was taken. This brings me to the next point. We are called to commit individually. We are called to commit individually. Verses 10 to 13. It is moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their percentages of money, the grain, the wine, the oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house 
and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So Nehemiah, he confronts the nobles on their actions. He addresses how they took advantage of the poor, advantage of those in need. The Bible says that he confronted their wrong and he declared, and they declared they would never do it again. The Bible says that they committed to loving one another as a family. And as nice as that is, Nehemiah knew that an open group commitment was not enough. And so based on this passage, he had the priests meet with them. And when you study this passage, you find out that he had the priests meet with them one-on-one to discuss their commitment in loving and serving one another. So for those who we know that who are members of this church, you know that you go through We Are Coastal classes. And that's great. We, we teach how to link arms with one another. We teach you all about Coastal's beliefs. But one thing at the end of the class, we always say, as great as this class was, this is not the end of it. You have to meet with an elder to talk one-on-one to discuss your commitment to this church and to the members and to God. You meet with an elder. That's what happened in this passage. Nehemiah, he demands the nobles to speak only love, but also to commit to it. And the priests were to hold them to it. And so we're living in troubled times. And as Christians, we're called not only to be loving to one another, but to commit to one another as a family. And because the people committed to loving God, they committed to loving one another, they began to praise God. I want you to pay attention to something about that verse. This is the first time in the book of Nehemiah where people came together to praise God. This is the first time. Praise causes us to look beyond our differences, look beyond our backgrounds, and focus completely on God. This is a room with people of different walks of life. There are people in this room that vote Republican. There are people in this room that vote Democrat. There are people from different denominational backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds. There are even from a simple standpoint, for some strange reason, there are people in this room that love the Dallas Cowboys. For some strange reason, they love the Cleveland Browns and the Washington Commanders. I don't understand it. I'm an Eagles fan, so I'm in, I know I'm in the right. But despite our differences, praise causes us to focus on Christ. Christ is our main focus. And so we can love one another despite our differences because of praise. And so it's praise that causes me to love you no matter what team you root for. This world is chaotic. But we, can allow, we can't allow the chaos of this world to divide us because we're one family through Christ. And so how do we live as a family? How do we live as a family in Christ? We love in the fear of God. We commit to the work of God by being committed to one another. And lastly, 
Our lives must reflect the gospel. Our lives must reflect the gospel. Verses 14 through 19, it says, Moreover, from that time, or from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for the daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at the table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations and were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This first verse of this section lets us know that Nehemiah was appointed to become the governor of Judah. Unlike the governors before him, he refuses to burden the people because he was committed to loving God by loving God's people. Now, earlier in this book, we go to Nehemiah 1, we find out that he was a cupbearer. He had a life of luxury. And I know I understand that he was a poison test kit, and that can be pretty complicated at times. But that, mean, that meant that he ate well. He drank well. He had a great place to stay. Only on one condition. He had to ignore the destruction of Jerusalem and focus completely on the king. But because he was committed to the work and the will of God, he couldn't. God's will was his first priority. God's work was his main priority. And now we see that Nehemiah in this chapter has been elevated to a high office in verses 16 through 19, it tells us how the leaders of all nations, even those surrounding, came to his table. That's the heart of God, later displayed through Christ. God is a holy and he is a righteous God who made us in his image and his likeness. But out of arrogance, we rebelled against God. And sin was ushered into the world. Sin caused us to focus on each other's differences and turn on one another in times of hardship. Our rebellion, it ushered sin into the world. It's separating us from a sinless, holy God, putting us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But instead of giving us his wrath, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, 
God the Son, he came to this earth and he lived among us. So Nehemiah, he came to a broken city from a palace, from a place of luxury. He could put the riches of the palace first. He could have put those riches first, but he was committed to the work of God. Jesus came to this earth from heaven, a place of perfect peace and riches to live in a broken, destroyed world. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He left his place of comfort to live in this sinful world, a world filled with chaos. But even in the world of chaos and hardship, Jesus never turned against God's people. He loved them unconditionally. He was tempted to use his power to take revenge against his enemies, but he even loved his enemies. He was tempted to take advantage of those in need, but he was gracious and charitable. Jesus lived a sinless life in a chaotic world. Nehemiah, you look at Nehemiah, his commitment to God, it led him to elevation, drawing leaders of all nations to his table. Jesus lived a sinless life committed to the Father, and it led to elevation. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So Jesus hangs on the cross, placed on a hill where all could see. He was sinless that he was so sinless that he hung on the cross facing the penalty that we deserve. He dies on the cross. He was buried. Three days later, Jesus bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. So when we surrender to Jesus as Lord of our lives, we are saved from the penalty of sin and we will live with Jesus for eternity when this life is over. Jesus lived in this chaotic world like us, but he never allowed the chaos of this world to get in his heart. He never allowed the chaos of this world to change his love towards people, change his love toward his followers, change his love toward his disciples and his friends and his family. Paul says, I read Philippians 2, 6 and 7, but just a verse before that, Philippians 2, 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ should be in us as believers. So when we're saved, the Holy Spirit, he fills us and he guides us in the path of righteousness. And so while we're living in this world, we're leaning on the strength of the Holy Spirit. My question to you, are you leaning on the strength of the Holy Spirit? Or are you trying to lean on your own strength, your own wisdom, your own understanding? Have you allowed this world to distort your view of God's people or are you looking at them through the lens of the Holy Spirit? When you look at all the chaos in this world, does it make you hate your spouse? Does it make you angry with your children? Does it cause bitterness in your, in your household and in your family? Or have you seen the chaos as an opportunity to say God is about to do something incredible? 
Have you seen, do you, have you seen this as an opportunity to say this is a great moment to see God's hand at work? That was the mindset that God wanted the Israelites to have at the Red Sea. That was the mindset that God wanted the Israelites to have at the wall. And that's the mindset that God wants his people to have now. Has the chaos of this world distorted your view of who God is? Through the finished work of Christ, those who surrender to him are brought into the family of God. We are a family commanded to love one another, not only when times going well, but even in hardship. And so I encourage you, let's just love one another. Let's love one another the power of the Holy Spirit because times are rough but we need one another we are one family called to stick together amen let's pray father thank you because you are holy and you're righteous we were once your enemies but through Christ the finished work of Christ we are now brought into your family along with thousands of other Christians who have surrendered to Jesus all over the world we pray Lord that we remember our kinship through Christ that we are one family, so even when times get rough, we would see this as an opportunity to see your hand at work. We pray, Lord, for a refilling of the Holy Spirit that points us to Jesus Christ and opens our eyes to the truth of your word. That we remember what you've said, what you've done in the scriptures. That we would lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, lean on his wisdom, lean on his understanding and not our own. We give you praise, we give you glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.